Greetings and God bless you. This is Tiffany Talks Hope of the Woman Inside the Mirror.com. You know, I want to talk about the beginning. In the beginning, God created Adam, then he made Eve. And ever since we've been picking up the pieces, you know, love and hate, marriage and divorce, sexuality and adultery, romance and heartache, everything we know and think we know about love. First dates, men down on one knee, the Hallmark cards with elderly couples who look exactly the same. It all started with two naked humans in a garden. We are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. We are created male and female. We were set up to love, to absorb the love God gave to us and put into our bloodstream and then to share it with another human being. But we don't live in a garden anymore. We're the exact opposite of naked and unashamed. We wear clothes, some of us more than others. And far too often, our clothes are a cheap facade to mask our guilt and shame. When it comes to love, we are both the victim and the perpetrator of the crime. Because we are human, we love. But because we love, we bleed. Love is the source of our highest highs and lowest lows. Love is joy and laughter and gift and freedom and faith and healing. But when love goes south, it's a knife to the chest. If you're a child of divorce, you feel the tension. You know better than anybody what happens when love breaks down, yet you are drawn to love like a moth to a flame. It's in your blood. Children grow up dreaming of marriage. Little boys want to marry their moms. Little girls put on white dresses and play, march down the aisle. You're no different, but at the same time, you live under a dark cloud of paranoia. Will you make this exact same mistakes as your parents? Will you become another statistic? Will you dream? Or will you have nightmares? And there's a good reason. The odds are not in your favor. 50% of marriages end in divorce. Now, did you catch that? 50%. Because we hear that all the time, we grow numb to how gut-wrenching and nauseating it actually is. The chances of your marriage lasting more than a few short years are 50-50. You might as well toss a coin into the air. Call heads or tails. Slap it on your wrist. Those are the odds. What happened? How do we get from the Garden of Eden to this? And how can we get back on track? I want to leave you with those three questions. Ponder on that this afternoon. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. This is Tiffany Talks Hope of TheWomanInsideTheMirror.com. Greetings and God bless you. This is Tiffany Talks Hope of TheWomanInsideTheMirror.com. In love, what does that even mean? Love is a junk drawer we dump all sorts of ideas into just because we don't have anywhere else to put them. I love God and I love fish tacos. Do you see the problem? The way we use the word is so broad, so generic that I'm not even sure we understand it anymore. How should we define love? To some, love is tolerance. I hear this all the time in my city. The idea is that rather than judge people, we should love them. And what people mean is that we shouldn't call out something as wrong. After all, as long as it's not hurting anybody, who are we to judge? Now, while this sounds nice and forward and progressive, It doesn't work for me. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy. And there's a fine line between tolerance and apathy. To many of us, love is passion for a thing. It's the word we call on to conjure up our feelings of affection. We love hiking or we love that new record by the band that you've never heard of, or we love chips and guac. When we aim that word at people, we usually mean the exact same thing. When we say we love someone, we mean we have deep feelings of affection because they make us feel alive all over again, adventurous, brave, and happy. Now, love by this definition is pure, unfiltered emotion. And your role in love is passive. It's something that happens to you. Think of the phrase, fall in love. It's like tripping over a rock or or a curb. And it's fantastic. 
right? But there's a dark underbelly to feeling this kind of romantic love. If we can fall into love, then that means we can fall out of it. What happens when the emotions fade or disappear? What happens when someone else makes you feel even more alive? Then you have a serious problem on your hands. If you're dating, it's not the end of the world. You break up and you move on. But what if you're engaged, married? Do you stay together even though you're not in love anymore? Or do you go the way of the 50%? I believe that marriage is for life. Remember what Jesus said? What God has joined together, let no one separate. I stand with Jesus, which is why I think we need a redefinition of love that will stand up to the frontal assault of life. And we find that redefinition in the scriptures. There's a letter in the New Testament called 1 John. It was written by a guy named, well, I'm sure you figured that part out. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He spent three years with love incarnate, and he was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That pretty much makes him an expert on the subject. John's definition of love is blatant and clear cut. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, love equals Jesus on the cross. There you have it. It's in black and white. If you want to know what love looks like, don't look at a dictionary. Look at a Jewish prophet crucified outside of Jerusalem. Look at God in the flesh, giving his life away for the world. Does that sound like anything deep feelings of affection? Don't get me wrong. I have no doubt that Jesus was feeling something in that moment. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Love is emotion, but it's got to be more than that. Notice that John uses the word love as both, both a noun and a verb. This is love, that he loved us. Love is a noun and a verb. Put it another way, love is a feeling and an action. When it comes to the feeling of love, you're in the passenger seat. As I said before, your role is passive. It's something that happens to you. But with the action of love, you're at the wheel. Your role is active. It's something you do. And the feeling of love isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with romantic feelings. The first song, Adam's poem in Genesis 2, and the longest song, Song of Songs, were both celebrations of romantic love. If you're in love, enjoy it. We are emotional creatures. God made us that way. Romantic feelings are a gift from the Creator God. But at its root, feelings can be selfish. Behind all the flowers and poetry and Twitter panation, there's a narcissist hiding in the closet. When we say I love you, we often mean when I'm around you, I feel happy. You make me feel better about myself, comfortable in my own skin. Now, that's not all bad, but you don't have to be a psychologist to figure out where that road leads. Love is the action. The verb is a whole other story. At its core, love, as defined by Jesus on the cross, is self-giving. Over and over again, the authors of the New Testament point out to Jesus at his death on the cross as the ultimate act of self-giving love. In another place, John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The prolific author Paul writes that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And in Paul's mind, Jesus' death is the model for how a man is to love a woman. Later, he writes, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands or wife, male or female, we can all take a lesson from that. Thank you so much for listening. This is Tiffany Talks Hope of The Woman Inside. Greetings and God bless you. This is Tiffany Talks Hope of The Woman Inside The Mirror.com. You know, the story of the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. In Genesis, we read about the first wedding of all time, Adam and Eve. And in Revelation, it ends with the wedding of heaven and earth. In fact, God officiates the first wedding. He speaks over Adam and Eve and says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Maybe you're thinking, wait, pause, what is why? What is why a man leaves his father and mother? 
To answer that question, we have to rewind to the story before the story. Genesis 1 tells the story of creation from 30,000 feet. God speaks and worlds are born. God shapes the land and sea. He fills the sky with birds. He floods the sea with fish. He populates the land with living creatures. And at the apex, the climatic moment in the narrative, he creates humans to take care of his virgin world. And then Genesis 2 zooms in on a garden called Eden and the first human called Adam. The Lord God formed a man, Adam in Hebrew, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Eden in Hebrew means delight. And the story opens with Adam, the proto-human, along with God in the Garden of Delight. Can you imagine a better life? So far, the story is off to a great start, right? Think again. The very next line is tragic. The story strikes a dissonant minor chord. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This comes as a surprise when you read Genesis 1. The narrative is written in semi-poetic language. And the refrain all throughout the story is, God saw that it was good. God created the land and the sea, and God saw that it was good. God created plants and trees and vegetation, and God saw that it was good. God created the sun and moon and stars, and God saw that it was good. But right after God created Adam, he said, it is not good for Adam to be alone. Why is it not good? Well, there are two problems. First, Adam is alone. That's a problem because he's created in the image of God, and God exists in a web of relationships. We'll talk more about that next time. For now, just note that Adam was hardwired for relationships. His aloneness is not a good thing. The second problem is one of logistics. Adam is called to take care of the garden, but when you do the math, you figure out the garden was the size of a continent. It's not a garden in the sense of a park. It's more like a national forest, millions of square miles of wilderness, wild, untamed, and teeming with potentiality. It's way too much work for one man. He needs help. There's a calling on Adam's life, but he cannot do it alone. Now, as a result of those two problems, God created woman as a helper suitable for him. Now, don't get hung up on the word helper. We'll talk about that next time as well. Just make sure you get that he needs help. So God gets involved. He brought her to the man. You know, I really love that part. God brought Eve to Adam and the Don Juan that he was. Adam started speaking poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then after all that, God said, that is why a man leaves his father. The closing line is an interpolation in the original language. It's almost like God's voice cuts into the story. It's the creator's way of saying, listen up, pay attention. This marriage is a paradigm for all marriages. It's not a one-off. It's a template for all marriages to follow. Think about it. Adam didn't have a father or a mother to leave, and Eve didn't have any other options. But the story is written in such a way as to make the reader slow down and take notice. This story is ground zero for a theology of marriage. God is saying something we need to get. And we have to wrap our heads around that. So I want you to take some time this afternoon and just think about that. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. This is Tiffany Talks Hope of the TheWomanInsideTheMirror.com.